0: Hi everyone, this is Connor Gilsonen and you're listening to the All Things Auth podcast. On this show, I talk to creators, researchers, founders, and advocates who are moving the ball forward on usable security and privacy. We discuss how they got to where they are today and what they're currently working on. Who are they trying to help and what keeps them motivated to overcome challenges along the way? The goal, as always, is for the rest of us to learn from their experiences and go on to promote usable security and privacy within our own projects and organizations. Joining me today is Simon Moffat, the technical product manager at Fortrock. Listeners of the show may realize that many of the guests in our previous episodes have been engineers getting their hands dirty building hardware and software products themselves and with small teams. While writing code is a critical part of security and privacy technologies, many different roles within a company are required to make those products a reality and make them usable. Simon has a long career focusing on identity and access management, many of them as a product manager. Simon, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here, and thanks for being one of the first guests highlighting the importance of roles who don't spend every day writing code. Hi, Connor. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me on. As a product manager, one of the first things I'd actually love to dig into is this, this term product manager. Um, you know, people hear the term PM, and I'm sure many of the listeners have worked with PMs, but I found it means something different to each person or even in a different context. It could be a project manager, could be a product manager. So I'm wondering if you can just give us a little bit of background on ForgeRock and what your role is there?
1: Yeah, sure, of course. Um, it, it, you're right. It's a very interesting area in, in general. Being a, being a product manager, um, I think latterly that there's a, a bit of a, a terminology change where you often hear the term "product owner" being being used as well. And I think the ultimate responsibility of a, of a product owner is to is to deliver something usable for a set of users or a community and when you're building software or building um uh, you know building a component of some sort it's there's two main components it's the how to build versus the what to build and clearly from a how to build perspective you know, super smart engineers and architects using latest libraries and the latest sdks to actually build something but the big input into that is what they should build and that's really where the role of a, a product manager or product owner comes, comes into fruition, you know, they, they help to basically represent the end user, if you like represent the stakeholder in saying what should be built. And I think that's a really, it's a really important part of any, um, software and hardware project really is working out what should be built, why it should be built and how that contributes, uh, sort of value to the business and to the end user.
0: Yeah, figuring out what to build certainly is a, is a critical first step. And even once you've identified what it is you're going to build, uh, making sure that you're continuing to fulfill that contract as the product and the company evolve over time um, certainly is, is critical as well. In terms of that product at ForgeRock, can you give us a little bit of background on uh, what ForgeRock is working on and a little bit of the history about how you got there? I know you've had a long career focused in identity and access management.
1: Yeah, it's just, it's been a it's been an interesting journey. I've I've been working in I guess the identity and access space um, sort of since 2000, 2001. so about sort of eighteen years or so. Which, in in any technology field, is a is is a heck of a long time. There's been so many changes uh, in the industry, in the use cases, in the demands, and, and what should be built. And I guess when I when I first started in in this space, literally straight out of university. You know, even in 2001, there's still lots of manual processes around identity management. And I was working in industry for, for four or five years, um, setting up accounts within uh, within a large insurance um, organisation, manually setting up mainframe accounts and permissions and access control lists and everything else. And that was a really interesting role, because it, it gives you hands on experience in the value of identity management of user accounts, the permissions, Um, not just the security aspect, but the more pragmatic aspects of of the impact of of what happens if those identities are not uh, created correctly, managed effectively, have the correct permissions, and so on and so forth. So 21 years of age, straight out of university, it was a really good first-hand pragmatic experience as to what identity management was about and the role it could have in in improving um, sort of workforce services and and then from then on I, I went into a career of a bit, a bit of time working consultancy and the last I guess or twelve years working for software vendors so building software within the identity and access management space um, now being at ForgeRock just over six years and ForgeRock's one of the leading uh, digital identity platforms um, in the globe I think at our latest count we had something something like 1.2 billion identities um, uh, you know, using the ForgeRock platform either on-premise or within public clouds or within their own ecosystems, but you know, using the, the ForgeRock software to log in, authenticate, perform um, uh, access management use cases. So it's, it's a really interesting journey, not, not just for my career, but how identity has changed so much in, in those 15, 16 years has is, is been pretty pretty spectacular, really.
0: Yeah, uh, I can definitely imagine the first-hand seat on some of the changes that have happened in that time period, and it'll be interesting to see what happens in the next 10 or 15 years. I think a lot of interesting things are going on in our industry, specifically in the identity and access management focus. One of the things that you had mentioned about the role as a product manager is really figuring out what to build. And one of the things that comes into mind for me is Figuring out what to build is a question that is not only answered by um, or influenced rather by how to build it, but a lot of other information, Um, you know, economics, the goal of the business, the type of business or the type of product that the organization wants to create. Can you talk a little bit about what goes into your day to day? What does your role look like um, facilitating? People working together, and what are some of the criteria that you look at for what a product should accomplish and how it should be built?
1: Yeah, that's that's a great question, and it's a there's a multifaceted answer to that as well. I think the, the what to build is questions is a very very big question, and it requires lots of of different um, inputs, lots of different interactions. And when I um, sort of first started working in, in the sort of product ownership space. You know, I, I came really from a, um, a technical identity background where I was, I was working in in technical sales, so designing solutions with, with the end user in mind. Um, so I had great exposure to customer needs you know, what the customer was, was uh, having problems with what their pain points were. But when you become a product manager, um, a, a colleague of mine, much more senior colleague of mine said, basically, forget about the customer just for a second and try and think as if you were the CEO for, for a day now I've this quite a I quite an unusual um, sort of piece of advice but actually when you start to peel that back you, you really are having to act like the owner of the business because you're not only just thinking of what does the customer need but you're equally thinking about the competition the market the industry um, you know, thinking about Forge Rock as, as an entity, you know, where are we going? Is is a, a business? Our strategy. What are our business and, and sales goals and, and objectives in that respect? So, you have lots and lots of different inputs and different demands and different requirements that you need to fulfil by building a piece of software. And you suddenly have to have to work out how can you find those different um, stakeholder voices. There's lots of different voices you need to be able to. Um, identify have methods of of capturing requirements and opinions and directions and, and strategies and, and somehow bring those together in a very very continual process um and then over time that then allows you to to build roadmaps advise on direction um you know prioritize bugs and, and enhancements and so on but I think that the best the best analogy really is you're acting like a, a virtual CEO in, in the sense of you have lots of different um, stakeholders, lots of different interactions, um, and that, by association, allows you to have a, a quite a global picture of of where you're going as a business. But equally, and hopefully, you know, you, you're building software that your customers um, find useful and, and beautiful and, and, and adds value to them.
0: Yeah, I definitely think the stereotypical um, engineer, software engineer, you know, coming from my own personal experience, it's very easy to. Discount other roles that you don't have personal experience with, or you don't have direct insight to, on a day-to-day basis. And I think many times it's easy to want to optimize a feature or something like that um, without taking into uh, account the larger context of a business. At the end of the day, a business needs to make money. It's it's there to pay people and serve its customers and its users, and bringing that insight into the conversation to uh, developers and designers and writers and everyone else on the team um, is is a role that I think is uh, too often overlooked by many other people within the organization.
1: Yeah, and you, you make a good point there as well. It's, it's it's been out it's been able to communicate that that vision as well. And as it, a as a product manager, you, you have and you have to have a, a sort of strategic vision as, as to where you want to take this product, and, and that vision could be. Could be two or three years um, ahead of where you are today and that has to be communicated to different people in different ways Um, you know how we communicate um, a a feature request or you know the the creation of a story for a particular um, short-term feature is very different to how we then articulate our vision to an industry analyst and say, look, well, we're adding this feature in now, because there's a much bigger goal that we're aiming to achieve over the next two or three years. Um, So not only do you spend a lot of time, sort of absorbing information, but you you also have to relay information back out and the different stories and the different voices you have um, need to match that as well, you know, how you communicate, Um, to an engineer to build something is very, very different to how perhaps you would um, present a roadmap at a conference versus an analyst conversation versus a customer. And so there's lots of different messages, which um, they're all interconnected, but very, very different levels of of information, which you need to sort of pass back out to your community.
0: Yeah. And uh, not only communicating between all these different roles, but you also mentioned Figuring out what features to build and how to communicate those to the different um, people uh, working in different roles, but let's dig a little bit into actually prioritizing those features. You know, one of the things that um, I think as engineers we love to do is is implement something the quote unquote correct way, the right way. Um, And in terms of security, it could be a motivation to get things as secure as possible, but. At some point there's diminishing returns where maybe uh, we're at the 95% solution and it'll be so much effort time resources to get to 99% that the company is better to focus elsewhere on different features. Um, as a product manager, how do you think about the priorities of um, identifying that diminishing that point of diminishing return and and how do you identify, uh, user experience versus functionality and particularly in terms of features that might directly impact the security or privacy of a product
1: yeah it's it's a really it's a difficult problem i, th- I think just to, to zone zone out a little bit i think the, the prioritization aspect that hits hits every project whether you are building software and you have the classic paradigm of um, uh, bugs versus features escalations versus the longer term roadmap um it applies to delivering of projects it, it, the whole aspect of, of sort of now versus next and, and how you prioritize is is a is an omnipresent problem but uh, zoom, zooming back a little bit around um uh, you know what what does the role of the product manager um, look to achieve and, and the first part there, is really getting everybody on board with the long term strategy. Now that long term strategy, it could well come from a manifesto, it could come from a, an organizational mission statement or a vision. But it's, it's really, really important to have that super simple strategy and have that communicated down, not just to the, the, the product ecosystem and through to the engineers, but to your extended ecosystem as well. So prospects, Customers, your sales team, the analysts, and, and uh, the industry, because that allows you to 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 say no to things. So th- it's the classic prioritization problem of let's create a to do list. You know these are the things I need to do. These are the things we need to add in the products Or these are the things we need to fix. And as you know, by design, that to do list will get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. So the inverse of that, you reverse engineer the problem is is you simply have a a, a do not list. It, it seems stupid, but you're basically, if you have a very clear strategy from the top, you say, this is the product we're building, this is the customers, this is what we're trying to achieve. Um, it's very easy to qualify out and very easy to say, look, we're not doing that. It's not in our sweet spot. It doesn't add value or it's, it's not an area we want to invest in. It's a lot easier then to work on the things which are important and that allows you to to remove distractions, um, stay focused, and, and absolutely, there'll, there'll be still areas within there which uh, need to be prioritized, and uh, you, know, you need to triage things and you know, alter their priority. But I think by having a, 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 a do not list is is actually a very very important part of, of helping that prioritization process.
0: I think the idea of having a do not list is fantastic. You know, I've I've worked at large companies with tens of thousands of employees, I've worked at small startups, and it is always a temptation on any project to wanna work on on anything that comes across in terms of customer feedback or an idea, and uh, having the discipline to follow your do list, (laughs) perhaps by having this do not list, Um, I I think is very difficult to do. So even literally going to the extent of writing it down as, hey, we got this feedback, we're going to categorize it and put it on the do not list because it's out of scope for this reason. Then maybe you have something to point to and say, hey, this is an interesting idea, but it's not really what we're focusing on.
1: Yeah, it's it's, it's essential really because with any list of, of, of things you want to work on, it will always grow. You, know, you you can you can plan, and you can have um, your sprint plan, your yearly plan, your release plan. It will always grow Things will change. Um, requirements change. Uh, spikes will occur because something's gone wrong, or a customer requirement appears, which is you know suddenly has a higher priority. Uh, maybe the industry changes, and suddenly you know, your competitor has released something amazing, and you need to respond to that. Um, or, or you know, even a, this could happen in a positive way. You know, you release a particular feature, and suddenly it explodes in popularity, and so that then requires um, enhancements and changes and alterations and, and further support. So that level of agility will always make your to-do list bigger. It will always grow. There's always going to be more to do. You could always spend more time. You could re-engineer, refactor, change things. That that will always happen. So it's really critical to to when um, when that, that list changes or attempts to grow you have a very very clear mechanism to say what's in what's out if it's out it's either forgotten about or parked if it's in then you can go through a, a standard triage process of you know working out um, uh, is this item popular what what's the breadth and depth of of impact of, of that particular request so you, you have a really structured, Triage process basically, which allows you to to go through and and hyper prioritize that secondary
0: list of things to do. You know, you had mentioned prioritizing the things that are in scope and also potentially reacting to a competitor that's come out with something. And of course, there's always going to be um, things happening in the market that are influencing what you're working on uh, in the short term. But how would you address certain situations where? you have a roadmap and you're implementing a feature and you get to the first milestone, which is um, some completed feature, but it's basic functionality. There's other things that are known, uh, desirable to add, to enhance, and something happens in the market, or maybe even internally, there's discussion and the desire is there to shift focus. And instead of completing or continuing along that roadmap for the existing feature, there's tension and pressure to add the next new feature to compete with a competitor or something like that. How do you address situations where moving away from something with the classic phrase of, we'll we'll come back to that, which in my experience is synonymous with we're not actually going to do that. And particularly in situations where, you know, refining the usability of a feature might not be um, in milestone one. It, or adding a very critical piece of functionality that makes the product or the feature more usable is not a milestone one. And those further milestones tend to get pushed back. What are some strategies that you've had and are there any pr- specific circumstances that come to mind where you've had to deal with this situation?
1: Yeah, yeah. that's a really, it's a really great point. I think I was reading a blog um, this week about Microsoft um, and this isn't particularly aimed at microsoft in general but in large software vendors um and, and the, the analogy was basically microsoft would release something on a tuesday and then three months later they would finish it and it was the whole adage of being a very super large software organization, you'd have you know patch Tuesdays and patch Wednesdays, and the software was continually um, being updated and iterated upon, and service packs. In, you know the old days of downloading service packs that were just bigger than the original product and and everything else. But the, the key point really was they wanted to release early and release often, and sometimes that was maybe a business decision. You know, get something into the hands of the end user, especially in the old uh, sort of, you know, when when the internet wasn't as as, as, um, fulfilled as it is today, and you wanted to really corner a particular market in the sort of PC space where you wanted to own a particular software segment, you wanted to get software out there, you you wanted to be the first mover, um, and so on. So it was imperative that you released something, it may not work, it may have bugs, vulnerabilities and everything else. But you had something out there in the marketplace. And that did a couple of things. I think one, the quicker you get software out, first of all, you're going to get feedback, you're going to give you real iterative feedback from end users, could be good, could be bad. But you get that feedback. And without feedback, you end up in the worst position possible of doing future development or speculative development, you you think this feature is going to be needed, you think this is going to be useful at a point in the future. And I guess as a as a product owner, you want to really collapse and remove any of that speculation, any risk, any doubt, any knowledge which, which you have, which is based on speculation. You want to have immediate feedback. And that feedback could be, um, yeah, this is fantastic. This is the best feature we've ever seen. Or it could be Bugs, escalations, customer interactions, which are, are giving you the knowledge to then um, iterate again and, and develop um, to a next stage. And there's a great book by um, by Eric Reese, which is all focused about the, the lean startup and some of the stories. You know, really about how you bootstrap the business, but there's some really good insight really around how to how to basically fail fast and, and fail hard on on a particular. Um, theme or feature or product that you're working on. And there's there's a a two-sided coin to this. One is getting something in front of the customer, whether it's um, 60, 70, 80% complete or not, you want to get it in front of the customer to to get the feedback and understand the usefulness, the benefit, the perceived value. Um, It seeds the market, it improves your competitive advantage. But then the flip side of that, of course, is you you often create um, what, what's known as feature asbestos, where as you say, you're creating uh, sort of threads of of features which are maybe not complete, and you have to somehow go back and clean that stuff up, whether it's a refactor, whether it's adding features to to make it more usable, making it more secure, bug fixes, and clearly as a as a, a product owner, when do you get the time to prioritize that? So you need to be very, very careful that you don't end up with a, um, you know, five or six different incompleted threads all operating in the market simultaneously. Um, I think there's, there's lots of cliches around you know, 80% of something useful is, is it's a lot better than 100% of something which is, is not useful at all. And you know, getting something in the hands of the customer in a timely manner has more benefit to everybody than, than, than something which is complete, but late. So there's lots of cliches there around, you know, in, in the startup book of just getting stuff in the hands of somebody, and then you can basically measure, iterate, and then and go again. So there's certainly lots of benefits of, of, of completing things fast, you know, remove doubt, uh, remove that speculation of whether something's good or bad or whatever. Um, and by association, you, you have that, that first mover advantage in, in certain circumstances of, of getting something out there early and quick, but you need to make sure that that feedback is then worked upon and you can then either complete something or you know, develop it to a, a level of sustainability.
0: Yeah. I, I definitely think that's one of the key points there is making sure you capitalize on feedback that you're getting and actually execute upon it. You know, feedback that, something needs to be improved, or even if it's working for, you know, more than half of the users, but there's still a large population out there that has challenged with a feature or maybe even the product at large that needs to be addressed. Do you see the role of a PM as someone uh, facilitating the conversation between the technical engineering side of the business and the uh, sales part of the business, the management part of the business where there's understandably a desire to focus on slightly different things where engineers might want to dig into the code more or refactor something and make it perfect and the business might need that next new feature to compete and they might have different philosophies or views on this feedback loop that you were talking about is is there a particular way that you facilitate that conversation and um, also, specifically, have you encountered uh, this concept of sales-driven engineering? And it's not to say sales is not important. To the contrary, it's extremely important for making a business successful. But when you fall into this trap of reacting so strongly to customer feedback during the sales cycle and bringing that in and saying, we need this feature, we need this feature, creating mm-hmm. a pressure to move on to the next thing quickly. Is there a way that you can facilitate the conversation between all those different groups and try to bring some clarity on what actually is important and where time should be spent yeah that's that's a really it's a really interesting topic actually the the
1: the real i guess if you're turning the dial between your strategy your execution and the sort of immediacy there's there's lots of conflicts within commercial um entities not not even software related businesses but there's lots of different economic uh, competing principles clearly if you are a profit-based organization you are you are driven by sales you are quarterly driven you have a target your sales reps have a quota they will look to achieve that quota they look to build a pipeline of future sales Um, how do they get that pipeline well you need a marketing function which allows you to um, identify um, future prospects there has to be a correct message and you need to target um, those prospects effectively uh, and, and ironically, coming back to the to-do not list, you know, you need a method of qualifying out within your sales um, process as well. So, you know, identifying uh, potential prospects who you don't want to sell to—you know, they don't have the correct requirements or use cases or demands for the software that you're you're building. So that that whole part of the business needs to be running effectively. All of the the cadence, the message, the pipeline development—that needs to be working effectively first. That, that's a, a prerequisite. Number two, clearly then, you know, the, the sales guy has, a, as you said earlier, a very, very short term um, horizon, you know, they have at best a 12 month horizon, because that's when their, their their target, their quota has to be fulfilled. And then they will break that down into quarters. And then even depending on the sales cycle, you know, you may be selling, maybe, maybe a six or 12 week sales cycle um, to, to sell that particular piece of software. So they're very much micro focused on the next deal, the next account, and that clearly brings pressures. Um, But coming back to the actual question as to how you handle that, I think, first of all, you need to have open lines of communication, which seems quite a simple thing to say, but there needs to be, we as PMs need to be able to get those signals. Um, And that could be, um, you know, understanding new requirements from prospects. So these are people we have not sold to yet, but clearly, Uh, we want to sell to is why we're speaking to them. So they may have new requirements, they may have new demands, they may have new problems, which we can help with. So that by association is a really good supply of information. And then you have your existing customers who um, their circumstances may change, they may well be generating new requests for enhancements and so on. And obviously, you have your own sort of ecosystem of bugs and escalations and stuff. So You need to make sure there are uh, lots and lots of channels of communication. So you need to have the ability to consume that information from sales and marketing leadership. And then once you have that information, what do you do with it? And that's then where you have a a really structured um, prioritization and triage process, which um, not only is it structured, but you have to be able to communicate that into the different, um, the different parts of the business. So you know classic things around you know you may never have a, a policy to uh, complete an RFE for a prospect for example you know you stick to your strategic roadmap and there's, there's certain triage points and, and decision points which are documented well described well published within uh, within the organization and again by having those nice workflows and those slipstreams, you can you, you can easily triage and, and, and prioritize the things which come out of the the conversations which perhaps you know things which were not planned for things which were not road mapped um, you know we've seen six customers in the last uh, eight weeks and they've all got the same book sales guy says well actually you know what've I've got five prospects and they're all asking for this this brand new widget because they think it's it's going to help them you know achieve two thousand dollars a month on efficiencies or whatever so they're all things which are unknowns if you like at the start of the year and you, you need a mechanism to capture them Triage them and then prioritize that into your your longer term roadmap. That was, that was quite a long answer to a short question.
0: Yeah, no, but it's, I think it's a very uh, complex question and complex topic. You know, the PM being the communication hub between a lot of these people who are focused on building out the product or selling the product or distinct roles in their day to day. Um, the PM as a communication hub between them uh, makes a lot of sense and trying to prioritize things is, is no easy task of, I'm sure many of us have been in that role trying to f- figure out is feature A worth doing over fixing bug B or vice versa, or, or some other related scenario. So one of the things about communicating between these different roles though, um, as a PM, what are your thoughts on how technical a PM needs to be? And that's kind of a loaded question coming from my background as an engineer. Uh, The same question from a different perspective is appreciating what each role is doing. Do you need to have sales experience? Do you need to have um, management experience? Do you need to have some kind of technical experience to understand or appreciate or communicate to the engineering team? And in the same way as designers, designers. You know uh, people who are conducting user experiments and user research what are your thoughts on the level of familiarity or experience with each of those different roles that a pm might need to have in order to be successful in, in their goals
1: that's a, that's a good question i think i I'll, I'll take i'll take a stab at answering this in, in two different ways i think one my my so my personal background and my specific role um within forge rock is i i'm a, a technical product manager so by Association. My main focus is around things like I, I'm basically a, a subject matter expert within the domain of identity and access management. So by association, I know the use cases, I know the functionality. Um, I would look at the industry and the market and understand uh, the necessary standards that are being worked on. I will perform competitive intelligence and look at. What our competitors are building from a technical perspective, their features, their backlog, their enhancements, what have they done recently, um, looking at trends in the market. So working with the analyst community, so you know, the industry analysts like Gartner and Forrester and Cooper call, and the guys who are trying to look at the market globally and holistically to say, look, where's identity management going in the next 12, 18, 36 months. So by association, I'm a a technical expert in that field, so I can provide that information back into our own internal ecosystem. Now, that isn't to say every single product manager should have that expertise. And my, I guess in our team of product managers, 12, 13 product managers we have, I think there's only one or two of us who are in that similar vein of, of, have that similar background. and we can obviously share that knowledge around the, the rest of the, the, the product management community. So, to answer the question, I think, as long, long as one or two people in that ecosystem have that that knowledge and that background, I don't think every single product manager needs to be technical, or they need to be from a development background, or they need to have you know, subject matter expertise. I think it helps. I think it helps massively. I think it helps do two things. One, it helps you to understand um the, the the whole the whole problem space in general in, in not just the end user but the problem space of having to build architect maintain sustain and support a piece of software if you can or had a, a background in programming um that helps massively you understand the challenges you understand you know sprint velocities you understand that some bugs you know, Not all bugs are the same, and some bugs are fixed in two hours, some will take two weeks. There's, there's a, an understanding there which is really, really valuable. Equally, if you're coming from a sales background, that's really vitally important as well. You have the empathy of the customer and you can understand the customer challenges. You can have a different type of conversation with the customer. I think in general, being technical, is that essential? Probably not. But being a polyglot and having maybe a sort of jack-of-all-trades from marketing to product ownership to development to the sales cycle, I think that is, is probably more important in, in, in this day and age when um, you need to be able to to listen and communicate to a variety of different stakeholders. Um, so it isn't it isn't just about being technical. I think it's, it's more important to be more well-rounded, I think.
0: That makes a lot of sense, knowing... Um up to a an appropriate level of each different role or i really like that word empathy that you mentioned even if you don't have experience empathizing with whoever in the company is fulfilling a role can really help foster that communication one of the things that popped in my head as you were talking about you know the benefit of insight into the, the funnel that runs the business is the help desk the support desk the the main door where customers can come to your business and say, there's a bug or this thing's missing, or I'm already in your ecosystem and something isn't working for me. And whoever is running that customer success team, bringing that into the business so that everyone at the business from um, technical writers, designers, managers, developers can get as much insight into empathizing with the end user, interacting with the product as possible. Is probably very helpful in a PM role. Have you seen the kind of highlighting that focus on end users who are actually interacting with the product be successful in changing some of the internal conversation that might want to pull the product in different directions? Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's
1: it's it's essential, really. I think, I guess, pragmatically, from from, from my specific role, you know you have the sort of pre-sales and post-sales sort of divide in the business. And they're very different um, ecosystems, different personalities. They do different functions for our customers. And the whole aspect from um, the post-sales aspect, which could be uh, architecting something for them on site and designing something right through to them, raising a, a support desk ticket right through to them um perhaps having to identify a bug um, that bug having to be triaged um sustaining engineering having to work on that patching it and releasing it back out to the customer all of those interactions all have huge impact on the product both in the short term if there's a bug get it fixed into the product but equally in the long term and the reason why it's important for long term is if you start to, to zoom out a little bit and start to look at the trends and patterns um, you know what's what are the types of, of interactions you have with the help desk is it for information you know can't find documentation they can't configure something they can't um they can't work out how something works is that a support problem or is it more a usability problem is it Developer documentation isn't strong enough, or perhaps there's a part of the feature, uh, a feature in the product which the user interface needs improving, um, or whatever it could be. So you need to look for those trends. Try and try and move away from individual uh, bugs and escalations and, and you know, the individual touch point, and try to zoom out and see if, if there are trends, patterns. Uh, are these regional patterns? Are they uh, based on particular versions, particular customer ecosystems? You know, in, in installing in particular uh, operating systems or a particular platform consistently causes problems. So you start to look and, and trying to identify those macro patterns. Um, and, and that support process is a huge bearer of knowledge. There's so many touch points, you know, configurations, localizations, um, even the time of day, all of different, different macro informations that you can leverage to say, "Well, actually, do you know what, if we look at the last 150 bugs, that are being raised are there any patterns yeah okay we can tactically issue patches but actually if we zoom out a little bit and if we just change things or perhaps introduce a wizard here or change something there there's a longer term impact um in, in in understanding that information so I, I think it's a really another really big input is is that support process um not just keeping the customer happy but the strategic value we get from, from analyzing those patterns and how we can look at the longer term instead of just always oh, responding to a patch or a, or, a, or a bug fix.
0: And what do you think about, um, situations where you're capitalizing on the feedback coming into you, but you might have a product where your customer is actually interacting with your software in a different way than your customer's customer or. Potentially, they don't even interact with it. They just integrate it into their product, and then you're providing some functionality that the actual end user is interacting with. So you have this multi-layer situation where your product is kind of at the middle tier, and you might get direct feedback from your customers in, is it easy to integrate? Are we happy with the administrative dashboards? Are things good? But at the end of the day, their goal in purchasing your product is so that they can meet the needs of their customers, of the actual end user. And they might need their own system for gathering feedback from the end users interacting with the product on a daily basis. And how how might that feed back to you as the actual developer? You know, now they're playing middleman potentially, or it might be difficult for you to actually get that same feedback that they might be getting through their help support since you're kind of in the background in that scenario,
1: mm, uh, yeah, it's, it comes back to a little bit to what I was saying earlier around you. You want to sort of move away from speculation, speculative development, and um, proxies, and, and I guess for, for specifically for 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 or in honesty, the majority of identity vendors, we are middleware. You know, we are we are building middleware, which is, you know, our, our relationship is really to another business is b2b. And clearly, those businesses are going to be in maybe in retail, they're in uh, banking, financial services, they could be government departments interacting with citizens. So their downstream customer may well be the end user, you know, the consumer or the citizen of that particular service. But we're not going to them directly, we're going through this, this proxy, you know, we're a b2b to C um style entity so it always boils down to to asking the questions really asking the simple question of the customer you know what's their current pain point you know what are their immediate problems they're facing what's their own immediate roadmap for the next three six nine twelve months and this allows you to understand well actually yeah if if we try to improve the end user experience do you know what it's actually better if we improve the identity architect's experience, because he's the guy who's building those downstream services. So you need to identify where the real pain point is, where's the choke point in those interactions. And um, developing middleware is is, is really that it's identifying where those bottlenecks are. We build the software, which other um, architects, security architects, identity architects, uh, digital leaders, application owners, they can use that platform to then deliver the services to their um, ecosystem and their end users. And then they know their end users better than we do. You know, a retail bank understands exactly the customer churn, the satisfaction rates, the the, the nuances of, of selling into their community A retailer knows exactly, you know, when to, to, to place adverts in front of their customers to, to, to sell um, whatever they need to sell. So they know their ecosystem better than we do. Our strength is helping that that B2B interaction, helping those platform owners, whether it's the application owners, the architects or the identity people, helping those guys fix their problems. Because if they're happy, ultimately their end users are going to be happy as well. So it's, uh, coming back to, to sort of the top of the podcast where we're talking about the overarching strategy. You know, where do we, as a software platform vendor, where what is our strategy and who do we provide the value to? Um, And if you're successful at doing that, by association, uh, the the end user of those services ends up being successful as well.
0: I definitely hope that's true. And it sounds like you've certainly got things dialed in at ForgeRock. One of the scenarios that comes into mind is, especially for products that might fall into this category of being a middleware, where they sell to a customer that customers maybe um, motivated in different ways but it ends up into in impacting the end user of their product um, you you mentioned that authentication uh, vendors typically fall into this category and thinking about the motivations for a customer purchasing um, an authentication or identity tool um, many companies are not started by um, security people or people who have um, privacy experience in the market and have that in the founding design of a product. So very often what I've seen for motivating these companies to purchase uh, tools and technologies to improve security, um, identity, for example, is not that they are hearing from their customers, oh, I need this, and I'm not going to keep using your product if you don't have it, but it is more regulations and standards and external forces that are requiring them in different ways to do things that might otherwise that you know they could spend resources on the next feature but they say okay there's a regulation maybe we're in the financial industry and we now need to have a solution for improving our authentication so we'll go out and find one of these vendors to help us and from their point of view Unfortunately, too often, it's a check-the-box approach where they're like, okay, we've bought this thing, we've put it in place, we've done that, and they don't put as much attention to user experience, even if the product affords you know, configuring and really dialing it in and providing a good experience to the end user. They're like, okay, we have it, we're done. So what are your thoughts on this external motivation for someone buying a product and potentially not implementing it the right way or even the vendor themselves being um, not having that direct insight into the end user and it being difficult for them to even understand there might be a problem at the larger scope of their product that yes people are buying it, but is it really improving the life of the end user at the end of the day?
1: Yeah, so it's a really it's a really complex um a complex topic. And I'm to try and answer that in, in two two ways. If you specifically look at identity and access management, um, is a, is a sort of sub focus of, of, of security in general. The, there's two sort of distinct markets there. One is identity and access management of the enterprise, or so of employees, ultimately. So making sure the employee has um, their, their provisions and configured correctly within all the different systems to allow that employee to do their job, ultimately. So internal single sign-on, um, uh, certainly there's going to be a lot of of compliance driven sales into that enterprise space. Um, things like sarbanes Oxley, um, uh, lots of different localized financial regulations to prove who has access to what systems within inside the enterprise. Um, and you're absolutely right, you know, a lot of those sales will be driven from a compliance checkpoint standpoint. You know, what's the opportunity cost of, of not being compliant? Well there's going to be a fine involved probably some additional audit costs. that there's a tangible cost which the client can can work out so they buy software to mitigate that cost they buy software to perhaps um automate some of the ineffectiveness around their own internal controls um but you have to sort of ask the question originally why do we have compliance in those particular use cases to start with um so compliance, there's a market failure somewhere within those ecosystems that requires intervention, either from a government or a regulatory body to say, look, this is a, this is a mandate, which you have to uphold to. And the reason there's regulation is it protects the end user, it protects the industry, it protects the businesses, and so on and so forth. So first of all, there's a market failure. Why is there a market failure? Why do businesses not go and Provide wonderful identity and access management experiences internally for their staff. You know why? Why? Why is the threat of fraud so high inside um, insider threat, and, and so on and so forth? So, try and identify the root cause of those problems first. Allows you to to sell the software in a different way. And you know it may well be a, a compliance or an efficiency led sale. That's fine. I don't, I don't think there's a, there's a problem with that. If you then flip and look at where we are from a um, sort of an internet identity or a digital identity perspective and this is where um, so sort of we've got some sort of great experience over so the last five or six years where organizations are not just managing identity for the enterprise but they're looking to manage identity for consumers so uh, insurance companies retail banks um, e-commerce they're all everything's online you're switching from a physical experience to an online experience and that's a very, very different driver for security. You know, you have a whole array of different um, unique selling points. If you are a bank or a retail organization and you can deliver a personalized experience which is privacy preserving, it is secure, it allows your end user to have a, an experience which is customized to them, but it is equally secure across a range of different devices, different locations. that 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 is instantly seen as a unique selling point you know if you've got two retail organizations one can deliver a really seamless privacy preserving experience as an end user you're probably going to go and choose that over another organization who perhaps has had a data breach no guarantee they will not sell your personal information to advertisers and so on so two very distinct audiences and very distinct drivers for wanting to buy identity management software.
0: I really like uh, your, your thoughts on the actual end user as well. And uh, would you say it's fair to summarize that particular thought in if all things are equal or close to equal for two different products, the end user might choose, might be motivated to choose the one with a better experience for logging in and feeling that their account is secure and feeling that the company is protecting their information and their, and their privacy, as opposed to the other company, which maybe has a weaker story.
1: This is, yeah, it's a very, very interesting topic. I think the, the economics argument tends to to argue the opposite. And by that, I mean, the end user may not choose the one which has a better experience, but they will certainly steer away from the organization that has a bad experience. So the classic, um, the classic problem of um, abandoned shopping carts in a retail setting, you know, you're selecting loads of things, maybe it's insurance, maybe it's physical goods, you then have to come to purchase and provide payment information. And then suddenly you're hit with a really terrible um, end user experience with registering a huge form to fill in to present your address details or whatever, you've forgotten your password is instantly a huge barrier for you to to purchase something. So I think by association that that negative experience drives behaviours. The ironic aspect being is, if you have a good experience, Uh, During sign up and registration and everything else, it's actually unnoticed. So, uh, authentication, authorization, uh, password resets, credential resets, that stuff is not noticed unless it breaks. And that's why I was sort of being pernickety about the inversion, where a bad experience absolutely will drive customers away. But a good experience really is, it's sort of expected these days. You know, if you look at, you know, all of the big sort of social providers, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, whatever, they all provide really good user experiences from a, a login perspective, um, and that drives expectations. It drives education. It drives uh, behaviors. So the end user is going well. You know, I can log into to Facebook on multiple different devices in different locations. It's seamless. I'm not having to enter a username and password on a mobile device. I authenticated once. I perhaps have a a long-lived token. There's lots of contextual analysis happening in the background to work out if my session is secure or my location's changed. But the end user doesn't see any of that stuff. It it automatically happens. If that breaks down and there's an interruption and there's a barrier, that's when the end user notices something, notices it's wrong. So um, I, I certainly think bad experiences drive people away. I think good experiences. I think they're now expected ultimately. I think from a, a consumer perspective, they they everything should be friction free. Um really low barriers to to sign up and sign in. Um I think it's it's in 2019 now, I think it's a, a de facto part of your of your service is to is to provide that seamlessly, really.
0: Yeah, I think it's more part of the public discussion now than it has been in the past, this idea of security and privacy and I definitely think things are improving. You know, I'm, I'm optimistic about the next five years, 10 years plus and having people like you, you know, passionate and informed working in the industry, uh, it's excited to see how products can continue to improve and particularly focus on getting that usability. You know, if it's a foundation, that's great. And I think a lot of companies have some catch up to do. So companies can share that knowledge and and help get everyone up to that status quo where where we should be headed. Absolutely right. It's
1: it's I think it's a big challenge for some industries. I think um I think the technology is is there as likes of Forge and others can testify to this the software is available. I think in some industries it's it just behavior. It's it's practices not not just from the end user, but maybe from the service provider side around you know privacy preservation, how they use data, how they capture consent how they, um, how transparent they are with their user community. Um, I think there's a, there's certain, I guess, cultural elements to that as well. But the, the really exciting thing is that the technology is there t- to help this stuff, not just from a, a security standpoint, but from a privacy and consent management aspect as well. And there's, there's some really, really exciting, um, tooling and, and vendors and, and products out there to, to make this stuff a success.
0: So Simon, wrapping up here, uh, I just want to thank you for coming on the show and sharing your insights into the importance of roles outside of people writing code and focusing on that as their daily task, you know, insights into what a PM does and the importance of communication and prioritization and different perspectives really was a fantastic discussion. No, not at all. Thanks. Thanks, Con. It's been really good. Is there anywhere that you would recommend people go to learn more about yourself or ForgeRock? Are there social media platforms that um, people can connect with you on?
1: Yeah, of course, yeah. Typical places, uh, Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, uh, I guess the two two favorites for, for conversations. i a big blogger as well um, on my website, simonmoffat.com. Um, certainly open to sort of dialogue and conversations on, on any of these themes. So, really passionate about that stuff. So um, yeah, I'd love to hear from anybody who's who's got any questions or tips or comments or
0: want to continue the dialogue. Well, Simon, thanks so much. It's been a really ple- a pleasure chatting with you. Not at all, thank you. You can find the show notes for today's episode by heading to allthingsoft.com slash podcast. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation and you'd like to support the show, I would really appreciate a rating or a review in iTunes. I personally read all of the reviews over there and they really help others to discover the show. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for the next new episode in two weeks.